You're listening to Randall Wallace Presents, formerly Bridging the Political Gap, the number one American history podcast of 2024 by Feedspot.com. This little tape recorder has been a big benefit to us in passing through the timeway on our transit out to the moon. And it's uh, rather odd to see it floating like this in, uh, in Odyssey while it's playing uh, the same from 2001. April 13, 1970. The mood could only be described as relaxed. Apollo 13, man's fifth lunar mission. The third scheduled to land on the moon continued its tranquil coast. This is the crew of Apollo 13. We everybody there. Uh, nice evening, and uh, we're just about ready to close out our inspection of Aquarius and get back for a pleasant evening at Odyssey. Good night. 13, we've got one more item for you when you get a chance. We'd like you to uh, stir up your cryo tanks. In addition, uh, I have a shaft and trunnion okay. for a look at the Comet Bennett if you need it. Okay. Stand by. Okay, uh, Houston, Houston, we've had a problem here. This is Houston. Say again, please. Yes, sir. Uh, Houston, we've had a problem. We've had a main B bus undervolt. Roger, main B undervolt. Okay, stand by, 13. We're looking at it. And we had a pretty large bang associated with the um, caution and warning there. And as I recall, BB was the one that uh, had had an amp spike on it uh, once before. In the interim here, uh, we're starting to uh, go ahead and button up the tunnel again. Listen in. 
spacecraft have been in uh, since Saturday afternoon when they docked after the very successful takeoff from uh, Merritt Island at the Kennedy Space Center in Florida uh, with the command module here and the lunar modules here. Uh, what has happened tonight is that the, uh, that the service module uh, has the uh, three fuel cells in it that supply fuel, basically, uh, to the command module for the flight out and back. It is the service module that is jettisoned just before the command module makes its re-entry uh, when it comes back to Earth. And all of the power supply and uh, life support and environmental equipment, basically, for long trips out to space are here. Uh, the uh, the now, this engine is the service propulsion system engine, 20,500 pounds of thrust. It is that engine which uh, is dependent upon to boost uh, all of this configuration first into the lunar orbit and then out of lunar orbit back home. Without that engine, presumably, they couldn't come back, except, of course, that they do have the lunar modules here below. Uh, now, normally, these would be detached, of course, make the lunar landing. And once they have made the lunar landing, the uh, top section of this, the ascent stage, comes back and rejoins. Then this is jettisoned, and the service propulsion system is left to bring them home. However, with them still attached, as they are now, uh, they can use the descent propulsion system engine, which is here. The reason they can use this... When they, whereas they cannot use the service propulsion system engine, is that this operates on batteries. It has its own battery supply, not fuel cells. In other words, it doesn't generate electricity. It simply uses it in a storage battery, just like in your automobile, as opposed to the fuel cells, which generate electricity. So with those batteries, they've got just a limited amount of electrical power. But that is enough power, and this engine, which runs from 1,050 to 9,500 pounds of thrust, is throttleable, as so-called, is capable of taking the whole shebang here out of lunar orbit and send it on the way back home. Now, they don't have any backup system anymore. That is the backup system. That's the one that they would have used if the solar propulsion system engine had gone out uh, uh, while they were still in lunar orbit and before they were detached from this. Now they can use it to come home, and that's what they're going to have to do. The maneuvers will be then, first of all, to get lined up, as we were talking about a moment ago, uh, without uh, perhaps uh, some of the... Uh, uh, some of the computer help that they would have normally have, but with the star sites that uh, Wally was just telling us about, they will get lined up uh, as accurately as they can, and it must be quite accurate. And then they will fire this engine down here at the bottom uh, to speed them up. By speeding them up, the moon doesn't catch them in quite the same orbit uh, it would have normally, and, uh, and in, in effect reestablishes what is called a free return trajectory. In other words, it speeds them up enough so that the moon just catches them with its gravity and throws them around in a slingshot maneuver, but just precisely if this firing is correct, so that they will return to Earth. Then perhaps they will need another firing of this engine on the way back to Earth to line up exactly for their landing on the scheduled spot in the Pacific. But at any rate, that's what is being planned right now. There is no further thought of possibly going to the moon, unless by some miracle, I suppose, those uh, fuel cells came back on the line, but that's not even in the, in the books, is it? Well, I wouldn't anticipate that. The, uh, once the fuel cells are gone, they're, they're almost irretrievable. The, uh, the one consoling thing, at least the last I've heard, is that a third fuel cell, which is number two in essence, uh, is available on the line, but they've conserved it. 
you can use the fuel cell to recharge the batteries in the command module, which is significant in that that itself can fly a re-entry without the service module, and does normally. Yeah. Uh, the, the only thing that can re-enter, the only thing that has the capability of re-entering, is just the command just, module. Just the command module. So they have to be able to jettison the service, uh, uh, the service module, and of course they'll be jettisoning this portion, the landing uh, modules, as uh, they have established that they're on the way safely home and have enough consumables. Now, uh, Wally, are consumables any problem? Oxygen and water. Uh, uh, they get some of their water supply as a byproduct of the fuel cells, I know. Right. But they also have pretty good uh, supply on board tanks that uh, well, are already filled, aren't they? The, the, by now, the uh, water byproducts of the fuel cell should have filled up the, what we call the potable water tanks. So that that supply is uh, readily available. And it's, yeah. it's a, a pneumatic source, so it, it just basically squeezes out from an air pressure system. It's actually oxygen uh, through a water gun, so they can drink that. Now, in the land, there is water also stored there for the crew. What so about, uh, I'm not worried about water. I'm not worried about food. What about the oxygen? oxygen itself will uh, should flow, flow through uh, from the land or from the command module because it's gaseous and should come through. Now, there may be some electrical circuits that must be activated and can be even by the command module to bring this through. But to circulate the oxygen, we have some pumps. We call them compressors, but they're much like little fans that really circulate the gas through the vehicle so that you have uh, layers of uh, impure gas and then layers of good oxygen. Well, this, this shouldn't be too much of a problem. The load that's required for that is very low. So, uh, so the electrical load, of course, is what I'm referring to. So really the, uh, the problem that uh, faces the men in mission control in Houston and Jim Lovell and Jack Swigert, Fred Hayes, aboard uh, Apollo 13, is uh, simply the one of, uh, of getting the limb descent stage firing off at the proper moment, proper time, with the proper thrust. Uh, presumably that's available from the battery supply they have. Uh, the concern at the moment, then, is, is limited to that, uh, and the, of course, uh, the feeling that we've... Uh, I would say we can just forget the moon landing for now and uh, concentrate on using the LEM descent stage, as you aptly described it, as the propulsion system. Even when things are going smoothly, it's a high-stress environment, isn't it? Oh, definitely. Maybe I think the whole program in those days is sort of a high-stress environment. It certainly was on the ground, in the pressure cooker that was mission control. Watching and listening to your crew die is something that will impress that event upon your mind forever. Gene Kranz had been a flight director when, just three years earlier, Apollo 1 caught fire on the launch pad, incinerating astronauts Gus Grissom, Ed White, and Roger Chafee. Soon after, Kranz helped write a document called Foundations of Mission Control. I'm going to read you a passage from it. It says, quote, suddenly and unexpectedly, we may find ourselves in a role where our performance has ultimate consequences. The work in this room is final. The decisions are final. The team in this room must be prepared not only to make those decisions, but to live with the results that occur. But the first two days of Apollo 13's mission hardly seemed like life or death. The spacecraft's in real good shape as far as we're concerned, Jim. We're bored to tears down here. The spacecraft had three parts. 
the cone-shaped command module was where all three men would ride for most of the trip to the moon and then back to Earth. The spidery lunar module, or LEM, would carry two astronauts to the lunar surface, then be left behind. The last critical piece was the service module, which contained the main engine and oxygen tanks. 13 Houston, we got a groovy TV picture. 55 hours and 11 minutes into the mission, Apollo 13's crew made time for an important duty, public relations. They beamed back a live TV show to Earth, something NASA liked to do, so taxpayers could see what they were up to. Fred Hayes was the uh, actor in this whole thing. Went in the lunar module and he opened up the bed that he was going to sleep on, sort of a hammock. And he tried to show people how he was going to sleep on this bed. Of course, he's zero gravity, so he kept bouncing up and down. It's kind of difficult here, Jack, to get into a hammock at zero G. A lighthearted look at life in space. It doesn't work too well in space. I can't call me air up here. Great show, except... No one was watching it. Explain why that was. One network had Dick Cavett, a live show. I think a second network had a rerun of Lucy. And the third network, at least in the city of Houston, Texas, the baseball game was going on. And everybody was watching that, including the people at the control center. Here we had been to the moon twice. And in some ways, ho-hum had set in. Complacency. Jim's wife Marilyn and daughters Barbara and Susan did watch the show in a private viewing room at Mission Control. And when you found out that not one of the networks carried that broadcast, how did it make you feel? Pretty bad. It did upset me, yes. But they got to see something the rest of the world didn't, an example of Fred Hayes' unusual sense of humor. You pulled something during that event that kind of got everyone's attention, and Jim Lovell commented on it. Talk to me about it. There is a valve in the limb, the repress valve, that when cycled does make a fairly pronounced uh, bang. Hayes turned the valve on live TV, and the bang startled Commander Jim Lovell. Every time he does that, our hearts come in our mouth. He throws it, and it gives a big bang, you know. And then Inside the spacecraft, Inside you hear the this spacecraft. bang. So every we look and say, oh, that's Hayes again. No harm done. This is the crew of Apollo 13. We it was after the broadcast, Jim, that, that Mission Control radios up, and they, and they asked you to do something as the crew that was fairly routine, involving one of the liquid oxygen tanks. Two tanks of supercooled liquid oxygen were the ship's most precious resource, providing both air and fuel. To get accurate readings from the tanks, Mission Controllers had to make sure the liquid didn't settle at the bottom. What did they ask you to do? It's sort of like a mush, this liquid oxygen. And so there's a fan down at the bottom of inside the tank and a little heater system. And so the question was, would you turn on the, the, the fan and the heater system and stir up the oxygen? And to accomplish that inside the spacecraft, what did you have to do, actually? Just flip a switch? Merely flip the switch. They were about 200,000 miles from Earth when Jack Swigert flipped the switch. The date, by the way, was April 13th. We make it there, uh, stir up your cryo tanks. Seconds later, the men of Apollo 13 were fighting for their lives. All right, Houston, we've had a problem. At precisely 55 hours, 53 minutes, and 18 seconds into the flight of Apollo 13, astronaut Jack Swigert followed Mission Control's instruction to flip the switch that stirred the liquid oxygen tanks. 
everything seemed normal. And then... It just had a big bang at one time. And so we all looked around. What happened? What's that? I looked up at Fred Hayes to see if he knew what was going on. Remember, Hayes liked to play tricks with a pressure valve. Immediately, Jim Lovell looks over to see, has Fred Hayes pulled another fast one on me? I'm sure he saw it in my eyes, and he saw I wasn't smiling. And I could tell from his expression, he had no idea. So this wasn't one of his practical jokes with the pressure. He had no idea. Hayes was in the tunnel between the command module and the lunar module. I heard a loud bang and uh, metallic sounds because the way the, uh, the vehicle contorted, it actually twisted enough in the tunnel area that it crinkled the metal. You could hear that metal crinkling. Did your heart jump up into your throat? I mean, that's, that's, that's not a sound you want to hear 200,000 miles from home. A absolutely, and I knew it right away was not, not a normal circumstance. Jack Swigert radioed Mission Control. Fifteen seconds later, Lovell repeated the message. I listened to that radio transmission that is probably as famous as the flight itself. Those five words, Houston, we've had a problem. And I listened to the calm in your voice. Were you as calm as you sound? I kind of think so. I mean... I was faced with a problem. And so if I did nothing but, you know, uh, you know, bounce off the walls for 10 minutes, I'd be right back to where that problem was. Things were not so calm in mission control. As soon as we received this call, it seemed our data just went wild. It was screwy. And for about 60 seconds, it was literally chaos in this room. Okay, we've had a problem here. Five guidance. Go guidance. We've had a hardware restart. I don't know what it was. Okay. Oh, Houston, we've had a problem. We've had a main bus undervolt. You see an AC bus undervolt there, guidance? Or uh, ECOM? Negative flight. I believe the crew reported it. We got a main B undervolt. We may have had an instrumentation problem, flight. Roger. And we had a pretty large bang associated with the um, caution and warning there. Uh, the sensation I had uh, that I had felt a vibration accompanying the bang, uh, not a large vibration or shudder. Is there any uh, kind of leads we can give them? Are we looking at instrumentation? Have we got a real problem or what? We're reading uh, 0 and 2 pressure in fuel cell 1 and 13 PSI on uh, fuel cell 3, O2 pressure. Okay, Barrett, what do you want to do? Open circuit fuel cell 1 and 3? That's firm flight. Shut down the... Uh, uh, the reactants valve, and I uh, asked for a reconfirmation since uh, when you do that, it's sort of irreversible. If you shut one of these things down, they uh, uh, only can be restarted from uh, ground support equipment. Yeah, that's, that's because of the AC, and it looks to me, looking out the uh, hatch, that we are venting something. We are, uh, we are venting something out uh, into the uh, into space. Okay, let's everybody think of the kind of things we'd be venting. GNC, you got anything that looks abnormal in your system? Negative light. How about you, Ecom? You see anything that, uh, with the instrumentation you got that could be venting? That's a firm flight. Let me look at the system flight as far as the venting is concerned. Okay, let's start scanning. Here is a bulletin from ABC News. The Apollo 13 spacecraft has had a serious power supply malfunction that could cause the lunar landing mission to be terminated early. I assume you've called in your backup ECOMs. Flight, say again. Have you called in your backup ECOMs now? See if we can get some more brain power in this We thing? got one here. Roger. 
At the moment, the astronauts are continuing to try to isolate their trouble. A late report says the spacecraft now is operating on battery power alone. All unnecessary equipment is being turned off. Okay, now let's everybody keep cool. We got the limb still attached. The limb spacecraft's good, so if we need uh, to get back home, we got a limb to do a good portion of it with. Okay, let's make sure that we don't do anything that's going to blow our CSM electrical power with the batteries or that will cause us to lose the main or the uh, fuel cell number two. Okay, we want to keep the O2 and that kind of stuff working. We'd like to have RCS, but we got the command module system, so we're in good shape if we need to get home. Let's solve the problem, but let's not make it any worse by guessing. My concern was increasing all the time. It went from, I wonder what this is going to do to the landing, to I wonder if we can get back home again. Okay, Tom, I'm coming back to you. Flight. Go ahead. I think the best thing we can do right now is try to power down. Right about then, it, uh, it was quite apparent to me that it was just a question of time that the command module was going to be dead. You don't want to get fuel cell pumps off, do you? We can do that on fuel cell number one flight. Okay, well, let's make sure we don't blow the whole mission. Well, the thing that concerns me is starting is throwing equipment. We, we had a problem. We don't know the cause of the problem. Flight, I, I've got a feeling we've lost two fuel cells. I hate to put it that way, but... Uh, I don't know why we've lost them. It doesn't all tag up. Network from flight. Flight network. Bring me up another computer in the RTCC, will you? Uh, we got uh, one machine on the RTCC, and we got dual CPs downstairs. Okay, I want another machine up in the RTCC, and I want a bunch of guys capable of running D-logs down there. Roger that. What all this means is only speculation at this point. First, though there has been some tumbling or rotation of the spacecraft, the astronauts do not appear to be in any immediate danger. Tell you what, uh, GNC, can you get somebody in the back room to try to figure out what the equivalent delta V is we're getting so that we can see if we can backtrack to see if we can figure out what's venting? Roger, we'll give it a try, flight. Okay. When I looked up and saw both oxygen pressures, one absolutely zero and the other one going down, uh, it, it dawned on me, and I'm sure Jack and Fred about the same time, that we were indeed in serious trouble. The only way to survive the situation was to transfer to the limb. Flight Econ. Go ahead, Econ. The pressure in O2 tank 1 is all the way down to 297. You better think about getting in the limb or using the limb systems. I'd say this is a serious uh, situation that we have ever had in manned space flight. We've always called the limb a good lifeboat under those circumstances. If at any time in the mission, however, the limb had separated, and we had gotten ourselves into a rendezvous situation or uh, the, the command module being around the moon, then what you state is absolutely true. It would, it would be a fatal situation. This is Randall Wallace, uh, your host for Bridging the Political Gap. I want to thank you first for tuning in to our podcast and invite you to come to our website, randallwallace.com. 
There you can get a copy of our book, Always Vote Your Conscience, Don't Take It Personally, and Don't Fight the Same Old Battles Over and Over Again, with a lot of policy suggestions and things that I think everyone can embrace, an argument for why we need to be working together instead of fighting with each other. Also, you can take a look at the first 11 episodes of this podcast, which was a podcast documentary that looked at the World War II generation of bipartisan leadership that built the American century and the lessons we can learn from them to apply to today's situations. Again, thanks for tuning in to our podcast. And if you've enjoyed our show, please leave us a review at wherever you get your podcast. And now, let's get back to the show. Why I looked out the window, but when I looked out the side window, I saw escaping at a high rate of speed, sort of a fan uh, system that uh, uh, of gaseous substance. And it looks to me, looking out the uh, hatch, that we are venting something. We are uh, we are venting something out uh, into the uh, into space. Roger, we copy your venting. It's a gas of some sort. And it didn't take much intelligence on my part to understand that the corner gauges that I'm looking at and the, uh, and the gas that I was saying that we are losing all of our liquid oxygen. And qu- very quickly, we'd be out of liquid oxygen uh, and essentially the whole command module would die. This was a flight that was snake bit from the from the very beginning. And so when the explosion occurred, you know, that was the epitome of the problems. Here in Mission Control, we're looking uh, now looking towards an alternate mission, swinging around the moon and using the uh, lunar module power systems because of the situation that has developed here this evening. This is Apollo Control, Houston. When that explosion occurred, my dream evaporated. I knew that there'd be no landing on a, of 13 on the moon. Regardless of what the situation, even before I knew what was happening, I knew that there was, was, and uh, it was only after I came back and landed uh, safely that I was disappointed that the situation occurred that I never could land on the moon. Meanwhile, down on Earth, Mission Control couldn't believe what they were seeing. The warning lights indicated the loss of two of three fuel cells. They were the spacecraft's primary source of electricity. They realized that one oxygen tank was completely empty and the oxygen in the second tank was depleting. The engineers at Mission Control were scrambling to figure out what was wrong. There couldn't possibly be this many failures at once, or the crew would be dead. It's as you, you fall back upon your simulation training and you start working the problem, and you work it the best you can. I was thinking that it was solvable and then I was coming to the conclusion that I couldn't solve it. And that wasn't a good feeling. But to the dismay of the engineers monitoring on Earth, the catastrophic failures were confirmed within a few minutes, and quite horrifyingly so. When James Lovell happened to glance out the left window, he could see a gas leaking. It was the oxygen from the second and the only remaining tank. At this moment, the crew knew that they were in big trouble. Amazingly, they didn't panic, as they knew that that would solve nothing. 
We never panicked, and, and, and people often ask me why we never panicked, and the, the fact is we could have bounced off the walls for about 10 minutes, and when we finished, we'd be back where we started from. As the crew watched their precious oxygen leak out, they realised that they would lose all oxygen and soon, subsequently, their last fuel cell. They were now without electricity, light and water, 200,000 miles away from Earth, and still travelling rapidly in the wrong direction. Landing on the moon was out of the question now. The first thing they had to do was correct their trajectory. The explosion had shifted them off course, and if they didn't correct, they would still swing around the moon, but upon their return, they would miss the Earth completely. As the disaster unfolded, the news media began picking up the story. From ABC News Space Headquarters, there has been an emergency in the flight of Apollo 13. Some kind of explosion occurred in the spacecraft's main engine. The explosion affected the spacecraft's main power system supplied by fuel cells. And that means that their oxygen supply is in jeopardy and their water supply is officially termed critical. The whole Earth was now watching, including the families of those in space. I thought to myself, something's wrong. You know, my dad's never coming back. I'm never going to see my dad again. And, um, you know, he's basically, you know, I, I basically felt at that point that he was dead. Review our status here, Cy, and see what we've got from a standpoint of status. What do you think we got in the spacecraft that's good? The explosion occurred at just the only place that it could have happened that would re result in a successful recovery. If it happened any time after we got in lunar orbit or when we were on the surface, uh, we'd never have the fuel to get either back up to rendezvous with the command module or even to get uncaptured by the moon. Okay, does it look like it's still going down? It's uh, slowly going to zero and uh, we're uh, starting to think about uh, lamb lifeboat. Yeah, that's what we're thinking about too. Well, we all came to the conclusion that the only way we we're going to get home was to use the lunar module as a lifeboat and what it has and does it have enough oxygen and things like that. Well, the lunar module was not a device you want to spend a lot of time in. Uh, it's, it was designed for two people for two days. And, of course, we had Swiker that came, came in, too. So there's three people, and we're there, as we've determined now, for at least four days to get home. Uh, and so it was, it was kind of cramped. And, of course, the first thing we had to do was uh, power down everything so uh, to save electrical power. Jack Swiker was the command module pilot. I said, Jack, you power down this command module, save what you can. We're going into the lunar module, power it up. and So basically, you're, you're, you're buying time. You're, you're stalling for time in that lunar module so you can get back to that command module for that precise moment you need it to get back into the Earth's atmosphere. That's right. The command module was the only thing that had a heat shield. One hour now into the crisis, it was a race power down the command module before its batteries ran out. Power up the lunar module before oxygen ran out. They'd all trained for years, but never for this. I knew the command module had only so much life left, and we, we very quickly had to get to a point in the startup of the lunar module before the command module completely died. The command module's computers contained critical data the crew had to transfer to the LEMS computers fast, and they had to do it the old-fashioned way. So when people look at their BlackBerry today or their iPhone, they're holding something in their hand that has far more computing 
capabilities than the spacecraft you were flying in outer space with. Oh, yes. Jack Swigert called me all the numbers, and I wrote them down, and then we had a, a conversion table for the lunar module, and I did the arithmetic to get the new numbers, and then I called Mission Control. I said, would you check my, uh, my uh, arithmetic for me, please, to make sure I'm not making sure a mistake. You're afraid to make a mistake here, Well, I, a mistake gonna, will cost you your life. That's right. I'm using all the assets I have, and that included the control center. They got into the lunar module with moments to spare, but now another decision loomed how to get back to Earth. I had a very fundamental decision I had to make. Uh, we could execute what we call a direct abort and come around the front side of the moon and be home in a day and a half. It was the quickest way home, but it would mean using the main engine, the one nearest the explosion. What if that engine failed or blew up as well? If this maneuver isn't executed perfectly, you're going to impact the moon. The spacecraft would actually go right into the surface of the moon? Yeah. Yeah. Kranz didn't want to take the risk. The other option, I'd have to go completely around the moon, take between four and five days to get back home. The problem with that was obvious to the astronauts themselves. When we started going to the lunar module, I realized it was designed for two guys for two days. And I counted the crew, one, two, three guys for four days. Simple arithmetic that meant they could run out of air, power, and water long before reaching Earth. In the end, it was the flight director's decision. And it was purely in a gut feeling that says, go around the moon, take your chances, trust your team to find the answers. In other words, take the long way home and risk losing their crew in space. The, but the main thing that we had to worry about, we found out, was uh, the carbon dioxide in the lunar module. The three men were creating excess carbon dioxide that needed to be expelled or they would suffocate. The lunar module was running out of carbon dioxide filters, but the command module had plenty of spares. The only issue was that the openings of the two filters were not compatible, so everyone had to get creative. The problem was that we had these square canisters, and in the lunar module, the receptacle in which you put the CO2 filters was round, because the lunar module uses, used round uh, canisters or filters instead of square ones. So our problem was, how do we connect this square canister to a system that will only accept round uh, filters? With at least two more days of the journey still left, the challenge, however, was that mission control could only build prototypes and the actual method had to be built by the crew as per the instructions from the ground. Even just describing the contraption was hard. Thankfully, the crew managed to do so using plastic bags, cardboard and duct tape. Even after solving the problems of power, water, food, and excess carbon dioxide, the biggest challenge still remained. Getting back to Earth. Tell me you're from flight. Go ahead, flight. I want you to get some guys figuring out minimum power in the limb to sustain life. The accident had occurred 200,000 miles from Earth. Lovell, Swigert, and Hayes rode in the lunar module attached to a lifeless command module. Apollo 13 had started as a mission of scientific exploration. It was now a matter of survival. Since the command module was dead, except for the oxygen and power hoarded for re-entry, the guidance platform of Aquarius, designed to land on and take off from the moon, would have to be used. The first milestone, and I consider this after the accident, I guess, more or less the survival now, the first milestone was to get alignment on the limb platform. 
Alignments are important, you know, because uh, without knowing exactly which way the attitude of the spacecraft is in space, there's no way to tell how to burn or how to use the engines of that spacecraft to get the, pro the proper trajectory to come home. The position we are now on the Earth-Moon plane, we have to go around the, the, uh, the moon to get back if we're going to use the DIPS engine. You would have had enough capability with the SPS engine, but of course we don't dare use that now. So we have to go to the back side of the moon and come back. To get into the correct orbit around the moon, the crew had burned out of a trajectory that would automatically bring them back to Earth. They would have to get back onto a safe course toward Earth. He needs to put his uh, throttle to men also, Frank. Throttle to men? Yes, he's at 29% now, roughly. This maneuver again was uh, completed on time, and because it was a manual burn, we had a three-man operation. Jack would uh, take care of the time. He'd tell us when to light off the engine, when to stop it. Fred handled the uh, pitch maneuver. I handled the roll, roll maneuver, and I pushed the buttons to start and stop the engines. Aquarius, and you go for the burn. Forty percent. Okay, Aquarius, you're looking good. The first problem was solved. They were back on the path to Earth. But there were many other problems to be solved. From a building at Houston's Manned Spacecraft Center, systems experts coordinated the coast-to-coast -coast effort to get the crew back. One of the big problems was consumables. There would be enough to eat and drink. But in space, there are other factors. Oxygen to breathe electrical power to keep the spacecraft alive, water to cool the equipment and keep it operating. What we'll be doing till we get them back on the water is concentrating on everything that is de their, their lives are dependent upon at the moment rather than worrying about the accident because there's nothing we can do about that now. This, it appears at the present time that everything is under control and that uh, we have a safe situation at the moment. Hey, I want to say you guys are doing real good work. So are you guys, Jack. We are about 70 hours from home, and uh, we think we have uh, uh, the situation in control. We've projected the uh, consumables, as I've described, and uh, we have a plan for carrying out the rest of the mission, but uh, uh, there's going to be no relaxation at all as far as that goes from now until splash. There was a key decision to be made before Apollo 13 went behind the moon where to bring them down. Their present course would take them to the Indian Ocean, where recovery would be difficult. A burn to bring them home quicker would take them to the Pacific Ocean near the recovery forces. Bringing them home even faster would place them in the South Atlantic, again away from recovery forces. It was decided to take them to the Pacific. The touchdown was planned for the Pacific, but the craft could land in an unspecified range of hundreds of miles. Re-entry itself was a gamble, Coming home from the moon, you had to come in and hit the atmosphere in a re-entry corridor that was only two degrees wide, a pie-shaped wedge. Not any less than five and a half degrees, not any greater than seven and a half degrees. You had to come down that two-degree wedge. If you came in too shallow, you'd skip out, like skipping a stone on water. If you came in too steep, well, that sudden deceleration would make you a fiery meteor 
over the sky for a few brief seconds. Because they were coming in too shallow and the guidance computer was still powered off, the crew needed to course correct by hand. They had to line up the earth in the centre of their window and hope for the best. I know that when that engine goes on, that I'll never be able to keep the earth in the window by myself because these are what we call three attitude, uh, th- attitude controllers and pitch and roll and yaw. I said, you take your attitude controller and keep the earth from going back and forth too much. I'll, keep, I'll take my attitude controller and keep the earth from going up and down too much. He said, fine. And then over on the side, I had a couple of buttons. Uh, one said start and one said stop. These were buttons that directly connected the battery to the descent engine the one and only time they were ever used in the Apollo program. At the proper time, Jack said, start. I hit the start button. The engine went on. 14 seconds later, Jack said, stop. I hit the stop button. And in between that time, we juggled the earth, you know, up and down and sideways. And then, of course, we waited. The last challenge was to move back to the frozen command module and power up its controls before the final flight to Earth. This required the creation of new methods. These methods would usually take months to be created, but they were devised in three straight days by flight controllers under the guidance of flight director Gene Krantz. The team on the ground were doing some of the most consequential engineering under a lot of pressure. Every calculation had to be just right. We've run uh, these simulators both here and at the Cape and at the contractors that, uh, continuously ever since uh, last night. We've tried to simulate virtually everything that we've had the crew to do that, uh, that is non-normal that they've done. And uh, we've proven most everything that we've uh, been able to, uh, to run on the simulator prior to passing it up to them. There may be some details we haven't done, but at least we've checked the feasibility of everything we've done, and we'll continue to do that. They passed 137 miles from the moon. For Lovell, it was the second time that he had seen the moon so near. But there was no time for contemplation. There was another critical burn coming. Okay, look, let's, uh, let's get the cameras put away. Let's get all set to burn. Well, yeah, one chance, Bell. And in Houston, the newsmen poured in to tell an anxious world the story. Shortly after Apollo 13 had separated from the Saturn third stage, the stage had been sent on to a trajectory toward the moon. Its impact would be recorded by the seismometer left by Apollo 12. By the way, uh, Aquarius, we see the results now from uh, 12's seismometer. Looks like your booster just hit the moon and it's uh, rocking it a little bit. Well, at least something worked on this flight. I'm sure glad we didn't have a limb impact, too. Jim, you are go for the burn. Go for the burn. Roger, understand. Go for the burn. Guidance okay? We're good, flight. Control okay? We're okay, flight. Tell me. We're go, flight. Inco okay? We're good, flight. Ground confirms ignition. We're burning 40%. West Houston, you're looking good. Roger. Shut down. Roger, shut down. I say that was a good burn. Roger, now we want to power down as soon as possible. Understand. 
To conserve the electric power and cooling water, the crew shut down all but the vital life-sustaining systems of the LEM. I think the LEM spacecraft's in uh, excellent shape, and I think it's fully capable of uh, getting the crew back. Uh, I think, as we have found before, every time we've put the LEM spacecraft to a test, it's always done much more than it was guaranteed to do, and I think this is a good case in point. Conserve the consumables, cooling water, electric power. The LEM water gun was leaking, and uh, we shut that off. Uh, I guess it leaked about a quart of water, I would, I would estimate. But it took me about two days to get my feet dry. And of course, it is, uh, I think you were all aware that the temperatures were going down in the both vehicles, and uh, uh, it's made for very chilly feet for a couple days. With nine hours to go before re-entry, they were traveling at 32,000 kilometers an hour, or 20,000 miles per hour. The crew wrote the instructions on whatever scrap pieces of paper that they could find on board. This takes over two hours. We knew early in the uh, game that the power down levels would approach survival of the crew and the survival of the system. The systems would get so cold that we were worried that possibly the batteries might freeze. The propellant in the command and service module lines would freeze was a good chance we would get the combined spacecraft home, but when we brought up the command and service module, it would be non-functional. It was the end of the road. But to everyone's relief, as the crew threw the switches to power up the command module, everything booted up. The components had withstood the cold temperatures far beyond their design limits. The crew jettisoned the service module. As the service module drifted away, for the first time, they could see the true extent of the disaster. The whole side had been blown off in the explosion. But now there was another risk. There was a possibility that their heat shield could have been affected by the explosion. If it was damaged in any way, it was likely that they would burn up in the atmosphere. But the crew couldn't think about that right now, as they had to jettison their lunar module lifeboat. It was time for re-entry. As we got towards the Earth, and we're getting ready to take care of everything. We managed to get electrical power back into the command module's uh, battery, so have enough power there to have the command module alone to the, for the descent. As it floated away, we could take pictures of the whole side of the uh, service module being blown out. And that's when we worried about, well, that was kind of close to the heat shield. Uh, did it damage the heat shield at all? But there was nothing we could do about it anyway. Uh, if the heat shield was damaged, it was damaged, and so that was it. Well, then after we got rid of the service module, we eventually got rid of the lunar module, and we were by ourselves in this command module again, and hopefully that with the power now, we had the computer running again, and it knew where we were, and it knew where we were supposed to land. At least that's what we hoped it did with all this rearrangements. And so we got into the back end and we started our descent. But it wasn't. It wasn't until we were safely on the water and I could see droplets in the window and knew that we had come back uh, to the earth that uh, if, in, unless the, the, the task force was someplace else, I think we were in pretty good shape. Lord, 
your astronauts will come back safe. If I may be serious for one moment and ask the entire audience for a moment of prayer for the crewmen of the Apollo 13. We'll hold silence for a moment, please. Next, they got back into Odyssey to jettison Aquarius prior to entry into the atmosphere. Okay, copy that. Farewell, Aquarius, and we thank you. Okay, LOS in uh, a minute or a minute and a half. Uh, an entry attitude, we'd like Omni Charlie. And welcome home. Thank you. Houston standing by over. It had been the moon mission people ignored, and now the whole world was watching. You couldn't breathe. <laughs> and we all just sat there and we just held our breath and we held it with the world. Apollo 13 plunged into the Earth's atmosphere on Friday, April 17th, after nearly six days in space. During re entry, the 5,000 degree fireball surrounding the ship blacked out all radio transmissions. The crew is now on their own. There are no more givebacks. The blackout was expected to last four minutes. Standing by for any reports of acquisition. And there's no response. And we call again. It's now one minute since we should have heard from this crew. Apollo 13 should be uh, out of blackout at this time. Every controller in this room is standing, staring at those clocks on the wall. One minute and 27 seconds after we should have heard from the crew, we get a ray of hope. Odyssey, Houston, standing by. Apollo 13 should be uh, out of blackout at this time. Uh, we're standing by for any reports of Uriah acquisition. Uriah, I uh, C-135 type aircraft. Uriah is a range instrumented aircraft, isn't that it? Yes. <clears throat> is the, uh... Uh, Four-engine uh, military jet, uh, KC-135, long-range, lots of fuel, and carries a large collection of electronics just for this, pr uh, this particular purpose, to fill in the voids in the tracking lane. We ought to be hearing something. We're now, uh, should have been out of that blackout by a minute and 15 seconds. So probably the most trying moment of any space Coming up now in three minutes until time of drogue deployment. Standing by for any reports of acquisition. We've had a report that Araya 4 aircraft uh, has acquisition of uh -huh. signal. Ah, through the blackout. Feeling better. <laughs> now just the shoot. Just the shoot. Odyssey, Houston, standing by, over. Okay, go. Let's 
That's all I needed to hear. Okay, we read you, Jack. That was uh, Jim Lovell responding with the okay, Joe. <laughs> Checking on Jack Swagger. That was Command Module Pilot Jack Swagger. I thought that was Swagger. We're looking at the weather on TV, and it looks just as advertised, real good. That's funny, isn't it? There they are in Houston, Texas, telling the spacecraft, plummeting down through the atmosphere, up over the Pacific, with the weather below them is good. They see on a picture. <laughs> Oh, boy. <laughs> 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 
and riding ever so quietly down. Just a beautiful sight to see. Just guessing now that that does not look to be much more than five miles or so from here. The shoots are open right on the exciting day of my life was the day I was elected president of the United States. And then I thought perhaps next to that was the day that Apollo 11 completed its flight and I met it when it came down in the sea in the Pacific. But uh, there's no question in my mind that for me personally, this is the most exciting, the most meaningful day that I've ever experienced. I feel that what these men have done uh, has been a great inspiration to all of us. I think also what the men on the ground have done is an inspiration to us. How men react in adversity determines their true greatness. And these men have demonstrated that the American character is sound and strong and capable of taking a very difficult situation and turning it into really a very successful venture. I recall, Captain, that when I spoke to you on the phone, you said that you regretted that you were unable to complete your mission. I hereby declare that this was a successful mission. From the start, the exploration of space has been hazardous adventure. 
The voyage of Apollo 13 dramatized its risks. The men of Apollo 13, by their poise and skill, under the most intense kind of pressure, epitomized the character that accepts danger and surmounts it. Theirs is the spirit that built America. Your mission served your country. It served to remind us all of our proud heritage of a nation, to remind us that in this age of technicians and scientific marvels, that the individual still counts, that in a crisis, the character of a man or of men will make the difference. GNC, go, surgeon, go, procedures, go, AFD, go, network, go, computer soup, go, Raj, network, give me an amber. RTC, you on AFD conference. RTC is on AFD conference. Okay, all flight controllers, let's play it cool. Well, I think that our, our odds at the time of the explosion occurred. Well, we lost, and we knew we lost the command module, that whole system. That were they're pretty low. They're, but the thing is, when you're in a situation like this, you don't think of the odds. You think of only how to improve the odds. It was a beautiful case of good leadership, uh, good teamwork, and the good use of initiative uh, by the you know ground control people who did a great job working closely with the crew who was. You know, executing all those things uh, correctly. So that's what got us home. Thank you for listening to Bridging the Political Gap. If you've liked what you've heard, please share it. And we would love to hear from you and your thoughts on on our show. So if you'd like to, please leave a review wherever you get your podcast. And until next time, thanks again and so long for now.